in the ancient days when I was going to college, the law was not a welcoming profession for women. In those days in the Southern District, most judges wouldn't hire women. In the U.S. Attorney's Office, women were strictly forbidden in the criminal <laughs> division. There was one woman in the civil division. Yeah. And the excuse for not hiring women in the criminal division was they have to deal with all these tough types and women aren't up to that. Hmm. And I was amazed. I said, have you seen the lawyers at legal aid who are representing these tough types? They are women. People ask me sometimes, when, when do you think it will be enough? When will, it, will there be enough women on the court? And my answer is, when there are nine. If I had any talent in the world, any talent that God could give me, I would be a great diva. <laughs> so even just hearing her voices, some of us are tearing up already. And today, if you haven't figured it out, we are going to talk about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And this is Katie right here. We have... We have a full house. We are out recording um, on the deck outside at Alexandra's house. And let's just go around and introduce ourselves. Uh, yeah, I'm literally crying now. So that's a great way to start <laughs> this uh, session. Um, I'm Sonia. I am an attorney. I actually work in um, abortion access. And so... I have a lot of feelings about this, um, but, you know, my disclaimer, I am not giving you legal advice. I am not your attorney. All opinions are my own. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. This is very much um, social commentary here amongst friends. Alexandra, want to go next? Hi, my name is Alexandra, um, Alexandra Orzik, and I am not an attorney, um, but I'm very passionate about uh, the direction that our country is headed in and um, what we can do to make sure that we still have a voice. And um, I'm just, I want to, I want to get people more involved. Yeah, my name is Amy. And like Sonia said, I've basically been crying for like the last two days, just knowing that our democracy is um, not headed in a great place right now. So and yeah, I'm just worried about what the future holds for us all as women, as um, LGBTQ plus people. And um, I just want to talk about RBG today and, and uh, honor her the best we can. And for reference, we are recording this podcast on this Sunday morning following her Friday death. So you will hear this. This episode will come out Wednesday um, just just for the timing of some of the things we're, we're about to talk about. So... I want to reinforce that this is just a social discussion. There are so many news outlets that are going to be running specials on RBG this week, this month, you know, basically now until election. But we are here to talk about our own personal feelings about it, how it affects us and our community as women, as gay people, as just, you know, Americans who like our rights. And we will discuss some of her history and what she's done for us what her replacement could mean. We're also going to talk about what court packing means and how the courts work and how cases even get up to the Supreme Court because I think that's just a, that's some stuff that a lot of us really are still unclear on because, you know, maybe we talked about it a little bit our senior year of high school and then not since then. So we'll tell you why we should care about what's going on right now and what you can do to help. It's the gayest part of your day. Sit back and grab a shot Let's start with a little bit of her history. Oh, you're looking at me again. I am again. looking at you. Yeah, yeah. you can't talk because my yeah, sunglasses. I know. Um, I should put my sunglasses on to cover up my. Yeah. You know, extra crying eyes. Um. <laughs> we support you. We're all crying. We're also not going to apologize for the bird chirping in the background. <laughs> Social distancing. Yeah. Right. 
plus birds. So I think about this a lot, of course, as an attorney, just sort of what um, the legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg has meant to me. Really, she has been so foundational in the creation of legal rights for all of us, for especially discrimination against folks based on gender, based on sexual orientation. So, you know, at some point in my educational career, I did certainly do an entire research report on RBG <laughs> um, because not only is she my hero, we are also birthday twins. Oh. Um, but she, you know, and again, you said folks will get a lot of this history from other outlets, but, um, you know, she was the initial director of the ACLU Women's Rights Project, and she brought to the Supreme Court before she was a justice, she argued cases that were foundational in shaping the way that we are protected under mm -hmm. the law. Um, and I think that that's actually a really interesting thing to note for folks who do not spend their entire lives steeped in <laughs> uh, constitutional law, but, you know, the Constitution has protections for American citizens. Some of them are explicit and some of them are not. Um, and so when the Constitution was drafted in 1776, it didn't actually say that we needed to grant equal rights to folks who were women. Um, mm -hmm. And so how we have come to get things like employment protection, like protection against discrimination based on pregnancy, recent cases based on gender identity and sexual orientation and legal protections for LGBTQ mm -hmm. plus folks, those are not inherent in our constitution. Those are based on interpretation of the law. Ruth Bader Ginsburg is one of the attorneys who created that interpretation that actually said the Constitution protects women also, mm -hmm. not just men. And it's also very interesting because to come up with a game plan as to how to bring any case to the Supreme Court and get them to decide how you want that takes years. It takes years of planning. Like, look at all the cases that had to go before the Supreme Court and, like, up through the lower cases just for gay marriage to be allowed, right? And that those teams of people working on the attack plan for how to get that through. And that is how it's become. It, it needs an architect. It needs a game plan. And it needs a general to march this legislation all the way up to the Supreme Court. And she did that, and she did that very well. She is also one of the best authors of court dissents that uh, we have ever had. Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> that's, There's that's no it. other just words. Read, yeah. Yeah. Just, she was the best. Just read that. Like, she used to spend so much time getting all of the words right. And it, going back through history, dissents mean something. And they are become a part of court history written documentation and it says okay like the court you know the court ruled this way but us three judges who voted against it did so because of xyz you know and she just took it to an extreme and they're beautiful they're beautiful documents and they're so well written every single one of them sonia have you seen any any ways that the dissent has has formed future case law yeah, they're absolutely, I mean, once a dissent is part of the sort of, you know, it's it becomes part of the formal court opinion, and it is absolutely then, like, that record is what folks will use to, like, subsequently make decisions. So you so, can pull information so can from pull, a dissent mm -hmm. in, in, an, in a different case yeah. um, to support yeah. your, your positioning. There are, there are... Um, and of course, you know, it's been a while since I was in law school, so I'm forgetting, but there's an entire, like, canon of law that is essentially a footnote in a dissent in an opinion, mm -hmm. right? Like, wow, we actually do get affirmative rights and decisions from the dissents. And I think that that is one of the things that is so remarkable about 
the legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg is that her, she spent so much time thinking about every aspect and, and then recording what is the importance of this decision. And that comes from, I mean, right, we're talking about she was just a fucking stellar attorney mm-hmm. and then became a stellar judge and so intentional and so clear about when she, because you will see there are plenty of times where you get an opinion out of the Supreme Court where folks don't agree, but they join uh, part of the opinion. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, you have the justices and they can join um, a majority or a dissent or a concurrence, mm-hmm. uh, which means that they agree with what the actual outcome was is, but they would have done it using a different legal analysis. Um, or you can write your own. And that's part of, like, that intention that she had about always writing these critical dissents is putting into the record her brilliant analysis mm-hmm. and her reasoning for why she would have decided something. A bench dissent is when a justice Supreme Court actually reads from the dissent, you know, when the court is announcing its decision. A summary. A summary. From some of it. When you do that, who is your audience? Obviously, the majority already disagreed with you. Are you speaking to the future? Are you speaking to Congress? Are you assuming that, like, the great dissents of Justices Holmes and Brandeis, that the day will come when your dissent will be the law of the land. What what leads you to want to read a dissent like that? I will announce a dissent from the bench if I think that the court not only got it wrong, but egregiously wrong. And sometimes those dissents are addressed to Congress, as was true in the Lily Ledbetter case. The bottom line of my my dissent in that case was the ball is now in Congress's court to correct the error into which the court has fallen. And in very short order, Congress with overwhelming majorities amended Title VII so that it said with unmistakable clarity what I thought it meant all along. It was, it reminded me of an earlier incident when the Supreme Court in the 70s said discrimination on the basis of pregnancy is not discrimination on the basis of sex. (laughs) Again, there was a coalition, uh, and by a large majority, Congress passed the Pregnancy Discrimination Act, which is the soul of simplicity. It simply says... Discrimination on the basis of pregnancy is discrimination on the basis <laughs> of sex. <laughs> and in Lily Ledbetter's case, well, every woman of a certain age knows what she experienced. That is, she was an area manager at a good, rich tire plant. She, when she was hired, was the only woman area manager. One day, when she'd been working there over a dozen years, Someone put a slip of paper in her mailbox. It had a series of numbers. The numbers were the salaries of all of the area managers. And Lily could see that the young man she had recently trained was earning more money than she was. So she said, enough, I'm going to sue. She got a substantial jury verdict, and then when her case came to the court. They said, she sued too late. Title Seven says, you must complain within 180 days of the discriminatory incident. Lily Ledbetter is way out of time. She waited years to sue. My th- theory was that every time she got a paycheck, the paycheck incorporated the discrimination so she could sue. 180 days from any paycheck. I also pointed out that what would have happened had Lily Ledbetter sued early on? No doubt the defense would have been, it has nothing to do with Lily being a woman. She just doesn't do the job as well. But then she works there year after year, and she gets good performance ratings. 
That defense is no longer available. They can't say she doesn't do the job as well as the men when they rated her as high or higher than the men. So now she has a winning case. But the court said she waited too long. Um, so that kind of dissent, if, if the court is interpreting a statute like Title VII, then Congress can fix it. But when the court is making a ruling on a constitutional matter, Congress can't fix it. Only an amendment to the Constitution, and we have a Constitution that's powerfully hard to amend, or the court has to change its mind. But there has been a tradition in the United States of dissents becoming the law of the land. And we can go back to the worst decision the Supreme Court ever made. It was in the Dred Scott case. There was a fine dissent by Justice Curtis in that case. Or the first justice, John Marshall Harlan, who dissented in the so-called civil rights cases in 1886 and in Plessy against Ferguson. Or you mentioned Holmes and Brandeis around the time of World War I. Those free speeches cases today are all the law of the land. So the, you're writing for a future age, uh, and your hope is that with time, the court will see it the way you do. For those that want a more uh, history, I'm, I'm sure it's not completely thorough, but it did a really good job of an introduction. The RBG um, movie on Hulu is oh, yeah. a great, great introduction to just the, the major facets of her life and her impact. And there's two really good ones. One is called On the Basis of Sex, and then one is more of a documentary about her. Amy's got a little bit of a list just of some of the things that she has helped us tackle in her career. Yeah, so the first couple are all things that you can do without a male co-signer. And they are obtain a mortgage, open a checking account, start a business, get a credit card, obtain a business loan. And the other ones are obtain a job without gender-based discrimination, obtain and retain employment while pregnant, which I didn't know that up until the 70s, employers could terminate a woman for not being sterile like that was a thing like I was like that's not that long ago like that was still a thing um continuing on here we have uh, not to be uh, not be forced to provide proof of sterilization and then pension benefits equal to male co-workers equal consideration to be executors of their children estates I was on um, social media today and someone was blasting RBG about her blatant sexism. <laughs> and I was like, if you believe that, then you actually don't know what anything about. Is. Yeah, like, right. because she was about <laughs> equality. It wasn't like, yes, yeah, she fought for women's rights, but she, because we didn't have any, but she also fought for equality among men for these specific things as well. And I think it is really, I just cannot reiterate enough times that like, those rulings are the basis for then how we actually now have, I mean, it was literally this year that the Supreme Court decided that you'd be fired for being trans. Right. That you couldn't be fired for being queer. That like, and, and that is because of this interpretation and we have so many folks who are on the bench or who are attorneys who are, you know, what they'd call, like, textualists. Like, they think that, well, the Constitution doesn't say that we shouldn't discriminate against somebody for being gay. Therefore, that's okay. But you know what? We don't live in fucking 1776. Right. And and all of those things that, that RBG did for women, she also did for folks who are not women, who are non-binary, who are trans, who are queer, like... That is the foundation of this body of law. Yeah, because, I mean, just to add to that, you know, we the people in 1776 were white male property owners that made up 6% of the population. So the we the people there is, or 6%. So that's, she is expanded really the definition mm-hmm. of people. Mm-hmm. And in doing so has inspired an entire 
generation or two or three at this point of female lawmakers, which we would not have seen. You know, in her day, like she was saying in that clip, there was a handful. She was one of nine women at Harvard Law in her class of 500 when she graduated. And she graduated at the top of her class and still was denied jobs simply because she was a woman. Right. And still was going to be paid less. And also, let us not pretend that that issue is fixed. <laughs> but right. yeah, like, I mean, because we <laughs> actually now we are the majority of law students. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you look at law school classes, they are actually over. Um, I I don't know. It's maybe fifty two percent or something. Right. The the majority are women, mm-hmm. but we are still underrepresented in the profession as a whole. Yep. In the high-paying positions, mm-hmm. in law firm partnership, in uh, the Notoriety. judiciary, yeah. in you know the <laughs> Supreme Court, um, and that is to say nothing of folks of color that are still wildly underrepresented and underpaid in these positions. I mean, people think of lawyering as like you know a really you know, it's a great job. You make so much money. Mm-hmm. You you do if you are a straight white man. Right. Uh, but for the most part, you still don't if you are anything but. If you have scruples. <laughs> that's, that's <you. laughs> hey, there um. are a lot of really good corporate attorneys who are making great money but still, you know, have values. But, uh, you know, it's... As a whole, the profession is still so male and so white and mm-hmm. so straight and so cis and all of these things that, you know, the pay disparities, the uh, still discrimination against folks for being pregnant, for mm-hmm. being queer, for being, it's not as blatant as it was before, you know, we actually, before RBG got these mm-hmm. protections for us, but it's still there. It's still there, yeah, definitely. So, so and, and to, to add, you know, to that, she she paved the way, but it's not so as blatant. It's it's kind of gone a little bit more underground. Um, how will that shift if you know you kind of let the weeds and the grass grow over this paving? If we with her replacement, mm-hmm. you know what what's going to happen? Oh, I mean, no answer. We're just going to keep drinking. We're just going to have a we're collective <laughs> sip right now <laughs> of whatever we're Everybody drinking. Everybody was like, um. <sighs> So there's actually a really interesting, um, one of the things that I've been seeing a lot in the last few days is this idea that the person who currently occupies the White House is going to appoint a woman. Yeah, I read that. Mm -hmm. Um, Because that feels like doing, you know, that feels like sort of paying lip service to this idea of equality. But the short list of those women seem to be really anti-queer, anti-abortion, deeply conservative in a way that is shocking to me just for, like, I don't understand how, you know, that's a whole other, (laughs) that's a whole other conversation. I don't understand how somebody can um, be so into acting against their own interests, but Girl, that's why I drink. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's why I've been drunk for two days. Yep. Fifteen yeah. 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 Four years. Three and a half years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but there's this, right, so they're sort of trying to tee up this idea that, that RBG can be replaced by putting another woman on which misses the point of what she accomplished because right. she didn't she did it in in spite not in spite of I hate to say that but you know she did all these things as a woman but she didn't being a woman wasn't the sole reason that she accomplished these things and I feel like replacing her on the court with just another quote unquote woman misses the whole point of what she paved misses the whole point of what it was hold on though because the entire Trump presidency misses the point of what she paid. <laughs> I, mean, I think that that's actually, there, could, there is absolutely the argument that like, 
putting another woman on the Supreme Court in and of itself could be a, you know, win for women, right? Wait, There's mm-hmm. that argument. Sure. But the entire issue of this that I keep coming back to is that the Supreme Court is supposed to be nonpartisan. Mm-hmm. This is one of the three branches of government that we are actually supposed to have that create checks and balances against absolute power. Judges are supposed to be nonpartisan. They are not supposed to be appointed because they are willing to overturn Roe v. Wade. Mm -hmm. They are supposed to be, I mean, all of us as attorneys... Smoke or not COVID. (laughs) (laughs) We all held our collective breath there for a second. All of us as attorneys are supposed to be objective, which is obviously not the way we operate. That's Mm -hmm. not how I, as a fucking queer woman abortion access attorney, approach my job. But judges especially are supposed to be objective, nonpartisan, and analytical of what the facts are applied to the law. So this idea that this guy who's in the White House right now created a short list of judges that were willing to overturn Roe v. Wade as their sole criteria mm-hmm. for being appointed to the Supreme Court is one more thing in a panoply of just egregious acts uh, absolutely against how the democracy and how this country is supposed mm-hmm. to work. And you cannot objectively look at what's going on and think that any part of this is what the founders of America were after. And I would also be saying that if it was the Democrats trying to take three seats. So for reference, um, Merrick Garland was Barack Obama's choice nomination for the Supreme Court 11 months before his last, before the election, right? 11 months. So He came out in February and said, Merrick Garland, he's my man. And by all accounts, he was the most conservative pick that Obama could have chosen. Mm -hmm. So he, you know, in theory is a Democrat, but really would have leaned much more right than anybody else he would have picked. And Mitch McConnell said, because he's Obama and because I'm an asshole... I'm not going to let him come to... Yeah, that was verbatim, I'm sure. That was exactly (laughs) verbatim. Yes. Um, So, fun fact, I lived in D.C. during those times. I spent a lot of time standing outside in front of the Supreme Court with a sign that said, hashtag, do your job. Yeah, (laughs) that's it. Which is like, your job is literally... Hey, Mitch, your job is literally to just hold a hearing for this guy. Right. You don't even... They refuse to even have a hearing. Forget allow him through they did not even hear him so but but how is that different than than how is and i i am agreeing with you but i'm playing devil's advocate how is a february holding a hearing in february different than holding a hearing you know as we approach uh, october how is that different here's what's different is that in 2016 when the republicans said we're not going to vote they then set a precedent that they are now backtracking on because it's their guy in the white house what you are also not supposed to do in the Supreme Court is retire because you know that your hand-picked conservative replacement will be voted in because you have a backroom deal. So that's what also happened this year. Some of the stats about this replacement is 10 Republican senators who in 2016 said that we will let the voters decide on the next president and the next president will choose the successor. 10 Republicans who refused to confirm Merrick Garland because 2016 was an election year have since, in the last two days, come out and said they will confirm a Trump nominee. 10 of them. Only one of those Republicans who said they would not confirm Merrick Garland has come out this year and said they will also not confirm a nominee this year before the election. So this is what I want to do. <laughs> Enter Lynn. <laughs> I want to find all of these Republicans who have switched their minds, blah, blah, blah. And I want to give all of my monthly salary into their 
opposer's election oh, campaign. Oh, oh, you're jumping the gun. That's the oh, end. What can you what do? What can you do? Oh, wow. I've, <laughs> already, I've already donated to the person who's running against Mitch McConnell. And we will link this article in the show notes. We will put a link there uh, so you can, you can read all about it. Um, and that is, I do want to say, that is at the time of this recording, those are the stats. It might change com- in this coming week, you know. We know how politicians like to take the weekend off. Well, they didn't. It was an hour after RBG died. Mm -hmm. One hour, Mitch McConnell came out and said, you know, we're going to pick the next one. And by all accounts, Trump didn't even know she had died yet. (sighs) Supposedly. Um, So, okay, let's, that's just some of the statistics behind it. But let's get into what her replacement could mean and then court packing and what we've already done with the lower courts. Oh, man. You're looking at me <laughs> We're again. We're all looking at Sonia. Yeah. <laughs> Lower Courts is a whole episode on its own. <laughs> I know. We're going we're gonna to do the abridged well, thank version. thank you, Lynn, yeah. for that because, but, I mean, I think that there is something about the magnitude of what, a, what is actually happening in the judicial system that mm-hmm. is really hard to wrap your mind around if you are not in it. Yes. Um, and I will say, I'm not in it all the time. I'm not a litigator, but I am a trained attorney who is paying a lot of attention to what is happening. And so it really, you know, we talked about this, that like just having a sort of a baseline understanding of like what do the courts actually mean to us? I think a lot of folks think about lawyers, think about court as like, I got arrested for something. I need to deal with my personal, um, you know, criminal case, whatever Mm. it is. I got a traffic ticket. Uh, I got a traffic ticket. I got a... You know, I have a loved one who's incarcerated. You know, I mean, we have, we all have very different connections with the court system. Mm -hmm. I will say that I continue to and will refer to it as the criminal legal system because I don't actually think that there's anything just about the criminal justice system. Ooh, whole other episode, Um, but I agree with you. uh, you Snaps. Save that for another time. That happens in state, um, in state courts. Mm -hmm. In, so any sort of, like criminal charge that you have is based on uh, someone determining that you have broken a law that is a state law. Mm -hmm. And so those are state courts. And there's an entirely separate system that is a federal court system. And the cases that go to those courts are um, what generally they would call a federal question. Mm -hmm. But essentially... Is there something that might have a broader impact or might actually be a violation of the U.S. Constitution? Mm -hmm. Because as wonky and sideways as we think it is now, our entire legal system is based on whether or not something is okay under the U.S. Constitution Mm -hmm. that was drafted by a bunch of white men in 1776. Again, a whole nother episode. (laughs) (laughs) There are three branches of government in the United States, legislative, executive, and judicial. The judicial branch is made up of the Supreme Court and other federal courts whose function is to rule on all matters related to the law and the Constitution. The Supreme Court has enormous power that has continued to grow since its inception in 1789. The first version of the court had only six justices. In 1869, that number grew to nine, and has remained that way ever since. Unlike the other branches of government, justices aren't elected. The president nominates Supreme Court members, as well as federal courts of appeals and district court judges. The Senate then has the responsibility to vote and confirm or reject the appointment. Justices don't have term limits. They're able to serve until they die, retire, or are removed by Congress through impeachment and conviction. The Constitution itself doesn't give any specific requirements for who can and cannot be a justice. In fact, federal law doesn't even require a federal judge to be an attorney. But traditionally, most of them have worked as lawyers. And when it comes to the power the Supreme Court wields, the Constitution is, again, pretty vague. Section 1 identifies the Supreme Court as a third branch of government, and it empowers the court to decide cases. That's pretty much it. Section 2 touches on jurisdiction, and Section 3 spells out regulations around treason cases. There is no mention of interpreting the constitutionality of the laws, the very thing the Supreme Court is famous for today. So how did the Supreme Court get that power? The answer is an 1803 Supreme Court case known as Marbury versus Madison. The case is a little complicated. 
But basically, Chief Justice John Marshall ruled that the law Marbury was using to make his case was unconstitutional. Marshall's ruling established that it was the United States Supreme Court's responsibility to interpret the constitutionality of laws. And so the court's mandate of judicial review was born. And as the highest court in the country, decisions made by the Supreme Court are final. That is, unless a future Supreme Court finds that decision unconstitutional. One well-known example of this was the Supreme Court's ruling in the case of Brown versus Board of Education in 1954 which ruled racial segregation in public schools unconstitutional. This overruled the Supreme Court's 1896 decision in Plessy versus Ferguson, which had legally protected segregation as separate but equal. When the Supreme Court makes a ruling, all other courts must follow this precedent. Unlike the president or Congress, courts only act if someone brings forward a valid case. And unlike the legislative and executive branches, the judicial branch operates outside of elections and voter input but it nonetheless has a profound effect on our daily lives by evaluating the constitutionality of laws to keep our government in check. When things come to the federal courts, that is generally, say, you live in a very conservative state. Texas. Texas. <laughs> um, and Texas has, I don't know, for a totally real-life example, decided to pass a law that says that Abortion clinics have to be located um, within a certain distance from a hospital or that physicians who work at clinics have to have admitting privileges at a hospital. This is a law that has absolutely no basis in medical necessity. Abortion is one of the safest medical procedures that people can undergo. And... The requirement for a clinic or a physician to have admitting privileges or be located near a hospital is just a scare tactic that this is going to be something that is going mm -hmm. to be so dangerous that somebody would have to go to the hospital. Yeah. Well, you know what? Under their entire ethics rules and also literally federal law, if there's somebody who's having some sort of a horrible outcome, the emergency department at a hospital has to accept that. Right. So... So that's a very loaded, you know, but also I think that there are other things we saw a lot of this in. Um, so that would have gone to the federal Like North court. Carolina, for okay. example, when they're like, we're going to make a law that says that like trans people have to use the bathroom of their, you know, quote unquote, real sex. Gender sex assigned Sex on ID, mm -hmm. right? Like these are things that ultimately infringe on what have already been decided to be our constitutional rights. So the entire court system has already established under Roe v. Wade that abortion is a constitutional right, under an entire history of case law that um, discrimination based on sex is unlawful, right? These are what are federal questions. So the state tries to pass a law that is blatantly unconstitutional, or not blatantly, but maybe, you know, just... Just a little bit. Just, just a little subtly. bit. Just subtly <laughs> unconstitutional, which is... Sneaks it in there. Frankly, their favorite, yes. right? Those right. are their... They're like, we might get away with this. Mm -hmm. We might get away with it. So the state legislature is just going to pass this law and see what happens. That goes to the federal court. And you know what? If there are judges... In the district court, which is the lowest level of the federal court that's in the state, who agree with them, they're like, yeah, you can get away with it. Totally. That's fine. We have the Constitution to say that this law is absolutely constitutional. You're fine. Mm -hmm. And then whoever is challenging it appeals it to the uh, circuit court, which is a sort of a regional federal court, which is great because, you know, in the Ninth Circuit here in California, like, we're fairly liberal, but, you know, in the circuit that is... Texas and mm -hmm. Louisiana. Um, mm -hmm. Nope. A little bit, little bit, yeah. little bit not so much, a little different. And those judges, if they say, you know what, we think this law is totally fine, hmm. uh, that's okay. They uphold it. Yeah. And then if you have a litigation team that has enough like time and like willingness and just like gumption to be like, we are doing this. You can appeal it to the Supreme Court. Um, but that is actually a very strategic 
Uh, it's a very strategic move. Mm -hmm. So, like, folks who are actually doing Supreme Court litigation are thinking about this a lot. You mentioned this earlier, Katie, that it, like, right, it takes years, years, years and years. So we're talking about this again. You know, I mentioned Roe v. Wade. Roe had a kid. She mm -hmm. didn't get her abortion. Yeah. She, it went to the Supreme Court years after she'd already not gotten her abortion and had a child. Mm -hmm. So this is an entire thing that is very nebulous and very far removed from most folks, like normal life, right? Our day-to-day, -day, what impact does this have on me? Um, but the fact is, and I feel like I think Ashley gave us some really good stats about where we have looked with the federal courts um, and the actual, like, stats of who is in these lower federal courts um, that Trump has at this point appointed 194. A federal judge. A federal judge. A federal judge ruled in favor of the administration. A federal judge has now blocked the third version of President Trump's travel ban. With gridlock in Congress and President Trump in the White House, the power of the U.S. courts is becoming increasingly apparent and politicized. Republicans have a prime opportunity to leave their mark on the nation's courts. It's always been that Republicans, for some reason, care more about the courts than Democrats do. Supreme Court justices. That's all. That's all you have to think. And Donald Trump really capitalized on that in this past election. More than a quarter of Trump voters said the Supreme Court was the most important issue to them. With that momentum behind him, Trump entered the White House with 108 vacancies for federal judges with life terms. That's one-eighth of the nation's 870 federal judges, more than any president since Bill Clinton. President Obama faced a Republican Senate in his last two years, and those Republicans really blocked his nominees that left a lot of openings to be filled right away, uh, almost historic level. The Senate continues our work to confirm President Trump's well-qualified judicial nominees. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has made courts one of his priorities. It's my top priority, so as soon as they come out of committee, if I have a choice between taking up a particular bill or taking up a circuit court judge, I take up a circuit court judge because I think it makes the longest lasting contribution uh, to making this the kind of country it, it, it ought to be. As older judges continue to retire, Trump has handed more vacancies. 18 months in, 145 vacancies waited to be filled. Trump had nominated 137 federal judges at that point. Only 43 of them were appointed by the Senate, but that's on par with past presidents. And by the end of Trump's term in 2020, more than half of all lifetime judges will be eligible for retirement. Over 99% of the cases are decided at the lower federal courts. And so it's really important to have judges at those levels who are going to be faithful to the law. One relatively recent phenomenon is the role of outside groups in starting almost campaigns for these Supreme Court nominees and even for some of the lower court nominees. Tell your senator, confirm Kavanaugh. Put Kyle Duncan on the Fifth Circuit. They are spending millions of dollars on both sides. The truth comes out. The number of groups engaged in fighting the Trump administration's court packing scheme um, has grown, hugely grown. Our role, really, from my perspective, is from the outside to be able to defend some of those nominees and correct some of the mis misconceptions, the distortions of your record. And we've seen, as the, as the politicization of the process has ramped up, that happening more and more. The number of Trump's appeals court appointments in particular stands out. He's appointed far more judges to the circuit courts of appeals than any recent president at this point in their term. Appeals courts are important because they cover multi-state regions. And so whatever those courts decide becomes precedent in that region. Like all federal judges, they serve for life. And the Trump administration has really looked for younger judges. A lot of the judges that they've put on the appeals courts will serve for decades. The bulk of our current federal judges were appointed by President Obama, but some who were appointed by Gerald Ford and Lyndon B. Johnson are still on the bench. Politicizing judicial appointments doesn't start or end with Trump but his appointees could chart the nation's course for generations to come. Currently, Trump has appointed and the Senate has confirmed one quarter of all federal judges active. that are active today. 
and that total is 194. And this is after roughly three and a half years of being in office. For comparison, Clinton had 87, Bush had 166, and Obama had 312. And all three of those are two-term, eight-year presidents. And in three and a half years, Trump already has 194. Well, and that's the Trump-Mitch McConnell legacy, right? Is yes. That they have really made their mark on the lower court. And it's not just in, like, I'm nominating people who are actually really qualified for this. Mm-hmm. I think Trump had the only nomination in history of, like, some guy who was, like, a ghost hunter. It's the only nomination to really, not... he's not been a judge and right. maybe and also not an attorney. He like, was, like, just, 34 years old and yeah. the only... The only nomination, I think, in history where the bar said, nah, this dude's not qualified. <laughs> like, like, he, he was like a ghost hunter and all this shit. Like, he is nominating, him and Mitch McConnell are nominating people who are very young, mm-hmm. really not that qualified, like early 30s. Yeah. And I'm not saying they're not good people, maybe not good judges potentially, but it is a totally different way of doing the lower courts right they're finding people that are a lot more extreme on the conservative Mm -hmm. side and a lot younger because it's lifetime appointment right and that is why the young really matters here is because they will be here for the next five presidents and this is what is called court packing yes which you mentioned but that's actually when we talk about that it's that lower courts that get less public attention and less sort of scrutiny generally. You know, I mean, we all watched Brett Kavanaugh's hearing. Oh, um, oh yeah. gosh. Pour one out. Again, yeah. um, I have enough alcohol for this. Yeah. We might need a and drink And I'm pretty sure that woman that. is still in hiding. But the lower courts, the lower federal courts, people are not paying attention to in that way. They're so, ramrodding them through in 20 minutes in where it used to take a FBI investigation and an actual confirmation hearing that could last multiple hours or even several days. They're just shoving these people but, but through to, in 20 minutes To play or devil's, I, I hate being the devil's advocate because I'm <laughs> Listen, only white people can play devil's advocate. Yeah, Have that, you ever caught just on Just like the term, I'm going to be devil's advocate here for a minute is like, <laughs> I feel like you should be a white dude with a fedora. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, like a wannabe goatee. So I don't know the validity of this. I know, I know. I don't know the validity of this, but I've heard that, that under Obama, people were very concerned about people stopping, having some of these, his nominations stopped. So they changed how judges could be nominated to a simple vote. Do you know if this is this has any validity? And so therefore... Therefore, that's what changed your your percep- your the, the full investigation mm-hmm. and the confirmations. It, it switched to a simple vote. Now, what is what is the what is the slogan? Google Google that shit. Yeah. GTS. 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 Yes. I'm 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 getting cooler in my slogans. Um, I don't know the true validity of this, so I'm I'm a little bit apprehensive to, to talk about this. But once I heard that, it made more sense because they kept getting blocked so much because there was such a political device divide that now it's it's kind of working in the opposite favor because. Well, but even but also, with, okay, go ahead. Even with the FBI investigations, even with the hearings, as we've seen with Brett Kavanaugh, it doesn't fucking matter. Yeah, right. Like, let's give the Republicans the respect on this. They're conniving little bastards, and they are very successful. <laughs> They're they are getting done exactly what they want to do. And the Democrats are not fighting back. We don't fight dirty in no. the same way. And this is one of these things that, especially having spent my career in abortion, the anti-abortion folks are so dirty and mean. So the, the Republican <laughs> mentality seems to be running like a business. And, and coming from my business background and being very financed and very targeted, they're very good at targeting and segmenting their population, getting one message, repeating it over and over, and being, you know, at their marketing. I'm pretty campaign. sure half their constituents can only understand one thing at a time. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. So we're definitely bringing people together, and by bringing people together, we're bringing people who are liberal together to this be divisive. Um, say very partisan. But, yeah, uh, but I would, I would say in the, the Democratic tent is a bit, to we want to be so mm-hmm. inclusive 
that we've lost our messaging to the point that it's not that we have to play dirty. It's just we have to have a, con- a, a, a cohesive message. And, and we've the- lost our point to the Oh, okay, we've lost our minds to the point where... <laughs> Are we all where, just, like, like, getting drunk and angry at this point? I'm, like, yeah, I'm, like, this having a... This podcast is going to devolve. Yeah. I'm having a moment. But, like, also what we're dealing with is, like, the third-party voters don't ever fuck up the Republicans. It's just us. Well, like, again, God, and so a, whole other podcast, whole... I get to do ranked choice voting yeah. discussion. I don't know if oh. we've done that, but ranked As a voting. hippie child who has been registered green for... Most of my life, except mm-hmm. for election years. Right, <laughs> right, right. I mean, yeah. ranked choice voting and, and, and in voting in general is, we can talk about it because, yes, third-party voters always fuck it up for the for the Democrats. So if you're thinking about voting third-party, for fuck's sake, save our democracy. Yeah, please do like not. GTS Ralph okay. Nader, okay? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Jill Stein. Uh, <laughs> Prospero. <laughs> Fuck, I remember Ross Perot, man. Um, but but Dole honestly, for pineapple. <laughs> How do I follow that up? I, I, I there's no. Sorry, were you trying to talk about oh, something sorry. important? Again? No, that's, no, that seems right. a theme for the day. I'm just gonna stop talking. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. That's all for this week, folks. Make sure you check back with us next week for the conclusion of this discussion. We will talk about why you should care about what's going on and what you can do to help. I will also link the sources that we used in today's episode in our show notes. So if you'd like to have more information on where those clips came from, please look there. Thank you for listening. We've laughed. We've cried. We've given our advice. We've given advice. Now go forth and live with pride. Yeah, live with pride. Ow.